Welcome back to the fourth episode of the Appalachian Broncos podcast. I'm your host, Mark. Once again, joined by my co-host, Nate, coming in via Zoom. What's up, everybody? It's nice to um, finally have an optimistic week like we have today. We've got a great show for you this week, so with that being said, let's get down to it with the weekly update. Yeah, so we'll start out with the weekly update, which covers our injuries, our COVID, and our players in the news. So starting out with injuries... The players who are out are Trey Marshall, who is out with Shin. Um, Tyree Cleveland is out with a undisclosed illness, un, like not COVID-related, so that's a good sign. And then Graham Glasgow is out with a foot injury. How do you feel about that injury right there, Graham Glasgow? The, that's a little concerning right there, especially since you know we've had shaky O-line play all year, so hopefully it's nothing too serious and he'll be back on the field next week against the Bills. Yeah, I think the only um, bright spot about Graham Glasgow being out is that Austin Schlotman has had plenty of time um, filling in for injured O-linemen this year, so it won't be as bad as it was earlier in the season with these replacements. Right. Okay. Next up is Mark Barron. So he's he's been missing games with an illness, which is now apparently done. So this will be the first game that he is completely eligible and there's no reason for him not to be involved other than maybe practice or coach decision so hopefully we'll get to see mark barron's athleticism out there um he's saying bassey tore his acl last week so he is out for the year and then the final injury is that drew Locke had a mild back injury he will start um does that worry you mark um as long as it's not, you know, like super, super bad, if it's just a little soreness, I think he can get through it, maybe take a little cortisone shot before the game or something, just get out there and get going. Yeah, my biggest worry is just, like, how's he going to be performing that fourth quarter once, like, all the stretching and rehab he does starts to wear off a little bit. Exactly. Um, but that closes up injuries. Do you have any COVID updates for us, Mark? So on the COVID list this week, we have Deontay Spencer's coming back. Uh, miss him dearly in the return game with Tyree Cleveland out this week. It's definitely good to have Spencer back. And also on a really good note, uh, Ed Donatello, defensive coordinator, will be back for the first time after missing, I think, the last six weeks due to COVID-related illnesses. It really hit him really hard, and I'm glad to see he's back out there. Yeah, I'm excited for him to be back because I feel like um, it's been a lot of stress on Vic Fangio because he's basically been calling the defense and all the management calls and everything like that. So maybe with um, Fangio focusing strictly on how the game is progressing and running, he can improve his calls a little bit, not worrying as much about the defense. Yeah. So uh, there's a lot of players in the news this week, Nate. What do you uh, have to say about that? Yeah, it seems like we've just been signing people up to our 53-man roster left and right this week. Uh, we started out with Troy Fumagalli, the tight end. We activated him from our practice squad. We also activated a safety, Elijah Holder, to our practice squad, a little bit of defensive back depth. We um, activated linebacker Derek Tuska from our IR list, so that's good that he's healthy and back. Mm -hmm. And then finally, we moved, we elevated linebacker Josh Watson up from the practice squad as a COVID-19 replacement, which means that he'll be on the team until that COVID-19 player, I can't remember exactly which one it is, is healthy again. Um, from other teams, we signed cornerback Nate Harrison from the Ravens, and... 
he's not eligible this week due to all the COVID protocols and everything. But I'm excited to have Nate Harrison because he seems to, I mean, he's played four or five years in the NFL with a lot of starting experience. How do you feel about that signing, Mark? Yeah, from what I've read, it seems like he'll uh, fit really well into Vic Fangio's uh, defensive scheme. And I'm uh, really excited to see if he'll actually get on the field for these last few games this season or not. Yeah, it could be some really crucial um, cornerback depth, which I know we'll probably get into later. Um, next up on players in the news is that Will Park's first game eligible for the Broncos is this week. So he will be playing, which is much needed once I talk about this last player in the news. So A.J. Boye, who has been having a phenomenal year, just kidding, <laughs> is now suspended for six games due to use of performance-enhancing drugs. How do you feel about that news? I feel like uh, this is a weird situation because it's tied into the Bradley Roby and Will Fuller um, suspensions where they were apparently lied to about a trusted medical official about a supplement they were taking and it was on the NFL's uh, list of prohibited drugs and um, that's just you know a tough break for all three of those guys yeah it's it's very tough and it's just I mean that's the end of his season and Mm -hmm. It's a very tough way to have your first year with a new organization. So hopefully we can chalk some of this up to learning a new system and um, all that stuff. But once again, we'll get into the DBs later. Let's get on to our next part, and we will review the Chiefs game. How do you feel about the Chiefs game overall at first before we get into all the positives, negatives, and everything? I think it went uh, relatively much better than you and I expected it to go, and I think the our boys pulled pulled a little more um, out than we expected them to, and I think they performed above expectations for most people. So even though we didn't get a win in the win column, we uh, did pretty well, and uh, I'm sure in this section we'll get down into some actual statistics of what we did well and what we didn't do well. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, I know I was watching the pregame for it, and I think it was like 13% of um, the voters said the Broncos would win, the other large portion said the Chiefs would win and one of the um, show hosts was like, I don't know what those 13% are thinking. And after you watch that game, I think that um, show host kind of understands what the Broncos bring to a football game. So first thing I want to do while breaking down the Chiefs game is I want to start by um, going over the keys that myself and Mark made up last week about what the Broncos needed to do to beat the Chiefs, okay? So the first thing we said last week was that Mahomes needed to be pressured in the pocket. Now, this key we did not do well. Um, He ended up going 25 for 40 for 318 yards and a touchdown. Um, The benefit of this section that our team did really well was once they got down into the red zone, we picked up our pressures and we covered better, but like, in the middle of the field, it was just awful. Um, and I looked up the amount of snaps that Mahomes was pressured. He was only pressured on 15 of the 44 dropbacks that he took, which is like a third of them. That's so bad. Um, somebody that good, you, you, yeah, somebody you, good you got to pressure. Our pressure on Mahomes. Yeah, somebody that good, you got to pressure him almost every single play. Otherwise, he's going to tear you apart. I mean, Mahomes is one of those exceptions where he can tear you apart even when he is getting pressured, but got to do better than 15 out of 44. 
Yeah, so that that was the worst key we we did. The other three keys I was very, very proud of. So our next key was that the special teams needed to limit the Chiefs returners for shorter returns because obviously our first meeting, they had a return for a touchdown and it was a big impact in the game. Um, amazingly, we held all of their returners to a total of five return yards the whole game. How do you feel about that, Mark? I think that's the uh, the best we've ever done in terms of uh, limiting kick returners, and especially with guys that they have, it's a it's a big win for us right there. That's a win in itself, and you know, like yeah. I said earlier, it's not a win in the game win column, but it's a win in the personnel department. So, yeah, it's it's exciting because um, I gotta give now I, I never want to give our special teams coordinator any um, compliment, but. Um, there were like a lot of kicks through the end zone. There were um, punts out of bounds instead of to the returner. There were punts very, very high instead of just booming them as far as they can. So it kind of benefited us that way. The next key, our third key, was that we needed to run the ball all four quarters. We definitely did this. Um, I know you're not a big Melvin Gordon fan. How'd you feel about him, his performance this past week, Mark? I'm about to uh, expose myself right here. Um, I'm honestly starting to like Melvin Gordon a little more than Philip Lindsay. It seems like Philip Lindsay's <laughs> just um, not cutting it for us anymore. And Melvin Gordon's been playing really well, and he's had a couple good games this year. And I'm really impressed yeah. with the way he's turned his season around after all the fumbles and that things he had earlier yeah, I mean, on. I mean, honestly, since me and you bashed him in like that first or second podcast, he's just been on a tear. So maybe, maybe, maybe that, he's listening in. Melvin, are you that, <laughs> let us know if you're that Colorado listener we keep getting. <laughs> okay. So our running backs ended up with 32 rushes for 179 yards. And the most important part that I want to say is that we rushed the ball 32 times and Locke had 29 dropbacks. So we rushed the ball more than we passed, which is perfectly for how I explained that Locke is better when he plays off of the run with those play actions and things like that. And we kind of saw how that affected the game. And then the final key that we needed to have was we needed to win the time of possession. Now, we did an amazing job with this in the first half, and mm-hmm. then I think the second half, we kind of fell apart. And overall, we won the time of possession battle by one minute, we held the ball for 30 minutes and 30, 31 seconds, and they held it for 29 minutes and 29 seconds. But in the first half alone, that gap was a lot bigger, and we went into halftime winning. So right, yeah. Like we didn't, when we said win time possession, we didn't mean by one minute. We meant by like five or six or yeah, seven minutes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you mean if you win time of possession by a minute, that means both teams are still getting just about the same amount of possessions as each other. Once mm-hmm. you win that time of possession by like five, six minutes, it means you're getting more like a whole nother possession than another team. Exactly. Um, but that kind of closes out our keys. What positives and negatives did you find in this game, Mark? So for the positives for the game, we uh, I saw we held the Chiefs to their lowest point total this season, which is really saying something because Pat Mahomes is on track to win MVP again this year. So. Um, that's a big win for us. Melvin Gordon ran the ball really well, especially that really big run he had. Yeah, that was the the longest run um, a Broncos player has had since Ronnie Hillman. Oh, my God. Dating ourselves way back to that one. Good old Ronnie Hillman. Uh, Defense played really well in the red zone as well. They uh, 
you know, Shelby Harris, especially Shelby Harris went off. He uh, had a 91.7 overall grade and a 90.7 pass rush grade. I think he had, what, two two batted down passes that game, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, it was something like that. And that crazy chase down he had on Tyreek Hill. Yeah, I definitely think that we outplayed the Chiefs, um, not including the, if you take those two turnovers away, I think we were the better football team. Maybe not the more talented football team, but I think we did. We played better. How do you feel about that? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think we played better than them, but the Chiefs, the, the crazy thing about the Chiefs is they're so good. It's still, Even if they're playing bad, they're still playing better than not half the NFL. So, Yeah, and, and another positive, which I want to throw out there, is I met my, um, my Hail Mary pick this week. Yeah, you did a lot better than me. My Hail Mary pick was over after the first drive, but... Yeah, I, I mean, I kind of I kind of got lucky because mine was that Tyreek Hill would catch under 70 yards and no touchdowns, and, I mean, we all saw that he caught that one touchdown that didn't count, so... All right, he got lucky there. Awesome, so we're going we're gonna to transition to the negatives. I think one of the biggest negatives was definitely um, K.J. Hamler's drop on that key, key play uh, later in the game. Um, I saw people actually bashing Drew Locke on that play on Twitter because on the all on the coaching film, Jerry Judy's wide open and his DB fell down. But what people that my comment to those people is you've obviously never played quarterback in your life. You've never had a pass rush. You don't have 10 seconds to look around all the field. You're definitely more used. You think playing quarterback in the NFL is like playing Madden where you can see every receiver at once, and that's not the case at all when it comes to yeah, playing quarterback. Yeah, my other thing is, like, Hamler is a rookie. Yeah, I know that. Mm-hmm. But I feel like he should get so much more blame because me and you both played positions in high school where we were catching the ball a lot. And our coach is – I bet yours said it too. Mine always said if you get two hands on the ball – you should catch it no matter where it is. And Hamler got two hands on the ball. So my dad, my dad raised me uh, on the motto: if it touches your hands, you got to catch it. Otherwise, it's unacceptable. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, if he got two hands on it, yeah, it was outstretched. But in a pressured situation, Locke got a ball in a place where Hamler could get both hands on the ball, and he's got to come up with that. An interesting, an interesting observation I've made. If you notice, most of KJ Hamler's drops have come from him crossing the middle of the field this season. I did not know that. I would have mm-hmm. thought the the middle of the field would be where he kind of was a standout. Yeah, if you look at all the drops, I think he's had like three or four big drops this year, and all of them, I'm pretty except one, maybe one, have been in the middle of the field. Yeah, I mean it's definitely something to kind of break down for next year and during practices mm-hmm. for him. At right. This. Another negative that I right. Another negative that I touched on, and the last thing is Philip Lindsay. Philip Lindsay has really, you know, fallen off the face of the earth basically the last couple weeks. And I, what do we, what do you think about that, Nate? Yeah, I'm not sure um, what's going on. He doesn't seem to be like I don't know as effective with his cautious running approach. I don't know if it's the type of run plays they're setting up for him, or if it's his confidence, or do if you, it's that lingering injury he has, I'm not sure. Do you think he's trying to do too much since he's already getting less cares than Melvin Gordon, so he's trying to, you know, run more aggressively and it's in turn affecting his play in a negative way? That could be a thing, but like this past week, Melvin Gordon had 15 rushes and Lindsay had 14. 
Yeah, and he had, what, you said, like, 20-something yards this week? Yeah, like, 20-something yards, and Melvin Gordon had, like, 140 or something, 135, mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah, it's definitely something to watch, and I definitely think, um, like we said, all along, running struggles are definitely what contributes to the next negative is Drew Locke's two interceptions, but even though we both agreed that neither one of them are really his to blame, I've seen people trashing him all in the media, I mean, but what Nate and I were talking about on the first interception is the tight end, Pretty sure it was Fumagalli. Didn't even attempt to catch the ball. Yeah, no, he, he kind of just watched it go in. And he was, you have to know as a receiver and a tight end or running back, anybody going down the ball, that if it's a 50-50 ball, your, main, your first goal is catch the ball. If you realize you can't catch the ball, your second goal is to become a defender and block the ball. And Fumagalli didn't do that second goal. Mm-hmm. And then Drew Locke's second interception, you know, it's just a little Hail Mary um, pass towards the end, picked off by Tyron Matthews, really, you know, desperation throw. They knew we were going to throw. There wasn't much we could do there. What did you think about yeah. some of the coaching decisions in this game, Nate? Yeah, um, I kept questioning these coaches' decisions, and I know me and you both kind of have some different coaching ideologies um, on how we think decision should be made so this will probably be a little interesting topic to go so I have four main coaching decisions made throughout the game I want to go over the first one will be Fangio deciding to kick the 58 yard field goal at the end of the half Um, it resulted in a missed field goal the Chiefs had three timeouts there's 40 seconds on the clock I think Chiefs drove down and kicked a field goal so it ended up being like a six point swing um, how do you feel about the decision to kick that field goal at the end of the half? We were we were up at up by six at that point. I can't remember exactly. It was I think it was what ten three maybe at that point. That's what it was. You're right. You're ten, right. Ten three or ten six something like that. I think we should have punted it because you know it's better to give make Pat Mahomes drive the ball potentially. Maybe we get a good punt on the five yard and make Pat Mahomes go ninety five yards down the field instead of giving them an easy, you know, one or two plays and they're already in field goal range. I mean, that's that's my that's my take on it. I know you have a different take. Yeah, well, on your take, like, yeah, with those three timeouts, they ended up almost, like, scoring a touchdown because they had so much time, mm-hmm. which is very dangerous. But I personally, I liked that he decided to kick that ball because up until that point, Brandon McManus had made, like, every single 50-plus yard field goal and he, he's gotten a lot of backlash, even from us, about him not deciding to kick some, like, longer field goals. So I like that he showed that confidence in McManus to let him kick. And, yeah, I mean, sometimes you got to risk it when you're playing a team that scores a lot of points. Anytime you can get a point, you got to capitalize yeah, on that's, it. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, what you would have decided would have worked out way better than us kicking at the end of the half looking back. But I still didn't mind that decision. The next one, which I think nobody may have picked up on, I know none of the announcers and analysts were really talking about it, but towards the end of the game, we had a play where on, and it was a second down play, we got really close to the first down. They, like, reached the ball out, almost made a first down, um, and... We ended up going back, questioning if we made it or not, blah, blah, blah. And then the offense got confused on the call because it was like a third and one, and they didn't know what play to call. And then Fangio ended up having to call a timeout at the very end of it. Now, what I think should have happened 
and I think should always happen is I think we should challenge in that situation. My reasoning of the challenge is that if we were to challenge the spot, the best option, they move the spot up and we get the first down. Awesome win. The worst case scenario, they give us the same spot. We lose a timeout, which we already had planned on using. And that challenge time takes up that timeout slot anyways. I feel like it's a win-win to challenge that. How do you feel about my plan on that one? Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I mean, especially since we wasted a timeout. I mean, you're going to lose the timeout regardless if you went lose the challenge or not. I mean, you might as well go for the challenge if you're going to waste the timeout like that. And I think yeah, that was... you, may, you may as well give yourself an opportunity to get some positive out of, out of the timeout. Yeah, I think Vic Fangio's uh, coaching and time management skills are not the best in the league. Yeah, they're getting better, but still nowhere near what they need to be. Exactly. Um, the third part of the game that a coaching decision had was when we went for the two-point conversion later in the game. Um, ultimately, we lost the game by, was it five points? So a field goal, or, or no, we lost by, was it six? I think so. It was 22-17, I believe. It was the, 22-16 was the final score. Yeah, yeah. So it was a six-point game. So even if we add two points, give us 18 points, it's still a touchdown game. So ultimately, it was unnecessary. And I feel like it cost us a lot of momentum. Do you agree that it kind of cost us some momentum? Yeah. Um, I, I didn't really, like you said, see the benefit of going further i think they were just trying to get some i think they felt if they had converted the two-point conversion momentum would have gone even more in our favor yeah and i just don't think our team's not really in a position where they've had to do a lot of two-point conversion so i don't really think they knew what to do really yeah i know that drew lock after that touchdown he was like super hyped celebrating um all sorts of stuff and then i i they zoomed in on him right after they didn't get the um conversion and he screamed a curse word and like hit himself on the head um and i'm like dang like we immediately just went from like super hype celebration to now oh my god we screwed up what are we doing we're killing ourselves and i'm like we can't you can't have a young team in a situation where you lose momentum especially we can't have them second guessing themselves and anything like that yeah, or going out there on the field or after the game and thinking, well, man, if I would have got that two-point conversion and McManus would have made that field goal and this and that, like, you can't have that going on. Right. Because uh, then it'll affect next week and the week after. So the fourth um, decision point I have, which I think is the most important one, is I think it happened around six minutes left in the fourth quarter. We were driving. We had just made it past the 50. We were, like, between the 40 and 50. Um, and we had a fourth down and three, and Fangio decided to punt the ball. Now, what resulted from this is the Chiefs drove down, scored, and we got the ball back with roughly a minute left and no timeouts to drive, like, 80 yards to score a touchdown and win the game. Um, what would you have done in that situation, Mark? Um, I I think you could go either way on it. I mean, I personally, I'm a little, I would be a little more aggressive, maybe, especially since the Broncos really have nothing to lose at this point in the season. So I probably would have gone for it, but I really don't know what play I would have run because you know not a lot's been working for us as of late. But yeah, my my thought is the whole game, the Chiefs between like their twenty and our twenty. 
we're driving up the field with no issues. The only way we were stopping them was once the field got condensed. Mm-hmm. So I feel like as a coach, you got to learn from the game and realize it doesn't really matter where the Chiefs are getting the ball. They're going to drive down into field goal range, and then we'll stop them like we did the whole game. And that's what happened. Um, so I feel like you go for it, you get the first down, you have a better chance of scoring. If you don't get it, they have less yards to waste time before we shut them down in the red zone, right. which I know is a very bold take to rather have a opposing offense closer to your goal line. But like it was taking them like no issue to get to our red zone anyways. And that's, and we stopped them four times in the red zone. So I think that's the, and that game was the smarter decision. to make. Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah, so now I think it's about time for Mark to start his show. All right, so this week on my weekly Bronco Breakdown, we're going to dive into one of the uh, you know more important like position groups on a team, and Denver has definitely had some great players pass through this. We're going to talk about the Denver Broncos secondary. And, you awesome, know, I'm excited. You know, we've had guys like... Champ Bailey, Steve Atwater, we had the whole no-fly zone, TJ Ward, Darian Stewart, Keep Tlaib, Bradley Roby, Chris Harris, but now we got some new guys, you know, well, newer, they're not new, but we got, you know, <laughs> Just, Justin Simmons, we're going to start off with him, you know, honestly, in my opinion, and I'm sure yours, Nate, uh, best safety in the league. By far. Got robbed of Pro Bowl votes last year, because, you know, the Pro Bowl is just a popularity contest, but, um, so Justin Simmons' stats this year, we'll throw it out there, 60 solo tackles, 4 INTs, seven pass deflections. And I actually saw a stat that if we didn't, Justin Simmons didn't have those four interceptions, the Broncos would be in the bottom, I think, five teams in forced turnovers this season. Yeah, I mean, he's he's currently on track to get um, over 100 tackles again. Right. Like, it's crazy. Beast. And then, you know, his, his counterpart, Kareem Jackson, you know, huge tone setter. I love him. Liked him when he was in Houston. Love him now that he's with the Broncos, you know? Man, not only is Justin Simmons the best safety, that combo back there has to be the best safety combo in the NFL. Yeah, I can't think of really any other better safety combo. I know there's a bunch of people that listen to this that, like other teams, are going to be like, oh, well, you know, so-and-so is better than your guys. Well, you clearly don't watch enough Broncos games because these are two of the best in the business right yeah. now. I mean, you have Kareem Jackson has 50 solo tackles and three pass deflections, but that doesn't talk about all of his, you know, big tone-setting hits he has, his tackle yeah. on the line of scrimmage, all of that stuff. And then we're going to get into some newcomers. We have Bryce Callahan, um, who is basically done for the season, which is sad. He yeah, was... we find, well, he's not done for the season. They say we could get him back with like a week or two left. But like at that point, it's not worth risking. He's not going to have an impact for the rest yeah, of the year. It's not worth risking further injury, in my opinion, to bring him back. But he, yeah. in my, uh, he was playing lights out, you know, 36 solo tackles, two interceptions, and five pass deflections. What are your thoughts on Callahan this season, Nate? Yeah, I mean, we fought, like, I, I didn't know, like, I know everybody is talking very highly about Bryce Callahan, but he went a whole year without playing, so I was skeptical, and I jumped on board immediately. Like, he just played so shut down, like, it was kind of like um, back in the 2015 days where we, the ball was thrown towards him, and, like, I wasn't stressed. Like, yep. I knew, like, he would, he would break it up or something. I think he's one of the only... Um, corners you might not know this who did not allow a reception 20 yards or greater 
His longest reception he allowed was 19 yards. Yeah, I don't think I saw that stat. I did see some stats saying that he was all re- repeatedly graded in like the top three corners every week this season, though. Yeah, phenomenal. And then now we'll get into his uh, counterpart at corner, AJ Boye, who we, uh, who has been having a very rough season this year. He only had, he missed time with the dislocated shoulder, the concussion, and now the six game suspension. He finished this. He'll finish the season out with twenty one solo tackles and six pass deflections. Which you know, six pass deflections isn't that bad. But at this point, I don't see the Broncos bringing him back next year, especially since it wouldn't cost us anything against the cap to cut him. What do yeah. you think about that, Nate? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we can take that money and throw it as somebody else who could be way more effective now. You also, like, if he does come back, you do got to realize he is learning a new defensive system. And he had no offseason because nobody had an offseason, which is tough for anybody to come in. Um, Yeah, this is a weird year for evaluating players. Yeah, it's it's tough. It's tough. So then we're going to get into the final two members of note of our secondary, our two rookies uh first we'll start off with michael hojamudia a favorite here on appalachian broncos yeah who so far this season has 35 solo tackles two forced fumbles and five pass deflection what are your thoughts on the young man nate yeah i mean i think we've seen growth from him every single time he started like in the beginning of the season he wasn't wrapping anybody up he was kind of getting burnt on some uh, moves i feel like now especially against the chiefs like we saw a corner that Kind of, there are a lot of plays with where he was guarding Tyreek Hill, and he would get quote unquote burned, but he would get burned short. And I, I really liked because in the beginning of the season he was getting burnt on those deep routes where he was falling for that first move to the out route or something and getting burned deep. Mm-hmm. And against Tyreek Hill, like he basically said, anything short is fine. I'm not getting beat deep. Just and that's it. what we need out of a rookie corner guarding a speed receiver is somebody who knows. I don't care if he catches a five-yard out route. That's fine. We're still living. They're not scoring. And in the beginning of the season, I feel like he was trying to pick every ball, throw it to him, and stuff like that. Right. Yeah, and then his uh, his rookie counterpart, you know, good old Isang Bassi, who you and I have grown to love. I think he yeah. might, might become our next Chris Harris Jr., uh, Bassey, unfortunately, tore his ACL in the last game and will be out for the remainder of the season. He'll finish the season with 21 solo tackles, one interception, and two pass deflections, which is really yeah, good and that's for all, Those stats are only on, like, a couple games played, though. Because yep. he didn't really have any impact the first, like, what, five weeks, six weeks of the season? Something so. like that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the games he played, he really showed that he deserves to be on the team next year. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, you know, we losing talking about losing him for the year. We also, like we said, have lost Callahan to his injury and, and, Bo- and Boye. Boye for his uh, things. But we did bring in a familiar face to uh, replace them. What do you think about uh, what do you think about that guy, Nate? Yeah, Will Parks. I mean, I, we talked about it last week. How excited I was about him coming back, just because everybody loves Will Parks in Denver. Like mm-hmm. he loves Denver. We love him. It's so awesome to have him back. And he just adds so much depth because we can throw him anywhere. And right now with our um, defensive backfield having no depth with three of our top players out, like he can 
play an outside corner role. He can play a slot corner role. He can play linebacker safety role, and we can move Simmons to cover receiver. Like we can kind of have a lot more flexibility now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that he's wearing Steve Atwater's number in his second stint with us. Yeah, I mean, his, we we know he's a big hitter. He mm-hmm. laid out a couple uh, that Steelers tight end. Um, he's laid out a couple people for us. Yeah, so. and he I saw a funny quote. He said he said the uh, the Denver players never kicked him out of their group chat because, and he was real happy to be back because he you know he kept in constant contact with him. And I knew as soon as the Eagles released him, the Broncos were going to sign him. I knew that was yeah, a foregone conclusion. Yeah, there are three teams that were trying to get him, and um, we ended up getting him. So that's yeah. so the only reason we lost him is because we needed to focus money elsewhere. Yeah, I, I mean, Will Parks is a phenomenal player, but he's since he's good at everything, he's not quite amazing at anything. Mm-hmm. He's like a good outside corner, but not great. He's a good inside corner, but not great. He's a good safety, but not great. And he was just wanting money for, like, a great corner or a great... He safety. wanted to be a starter, and we weren't willing to make him a starter. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, going going into adding people and going back to, you know, possibly cutting Boye, I'm going to throw some names at you, Nate. Uh, some four guys, one guy that's in the NFL, and three guys that'll be in the NFL in this next draft that could potentially be added to Denver's secondary, and I want to hear your thoughts on them. Okay, hit me with them. So we'll start off with a familiar face in the NFL, if you watch the NFL. We'll go Patrick Peterson. Um, he's scheduled to be an unrestricted free agent this offseason. His career stats, you know, just little. He has 28 interceptions, 89 pass deflections, and 483 tackles. What do you think about Denver potentially signing him? I mean, you know Denver is known, and John Elway is known to pull in players who are kind of towards that end of their career and kind of the Broncos pull that those last couple years of greatness out of them. Um, and Patrick Peterson obviously is not to that point yet, but I think we could pull him in and get another like three, four years of mm-hmm. solid play. Will we be able to afford him? I don't know about that. Yeah. And it'll be funny uh, if we do cut Boye and get Patrick Peterson number 21. That'll be, I think, like the fifth player, fifth or sixth player to wear number 21 since Aqib Tlaib left. Yeah, everybody's worn it. Right. All right, so now we're going to get into the rookies. The first rookie I have here is uh, Caleb Farley, the corner from Virginia Tech, who opted mm-hmm. out. He opted out this season, so my only concern about him is he might be a little rusty since he didn't play yeah. at all this year. Yeah. He has, in two seasons of Virginia Tech, he has six interceptions, 19 pass deflections, and 43 tackles. What... Any concerns about drafting a player that hasn't played for a whole year, Nate? Very, very tough. It's all going to come come down to that combine. And I guess even with the combine, like, yeah, they can run fast. They can do the change of direction. But, like, you just don't – you're not as confident that they can do that for yeah. 60 minutes. He hasn't so. gone into contact in a year, anything yeah. like that. So the second rookie – or incoming rookie out there, he was Sean Wade from Ohio State. And his time yeah, at, at Ohio State, he's he played this year. Then Him and the next guy both played this year. So Sean Wade, his time at Ohio State, has six INTs, just like Caleb Farley. 18 pass deflections, only one less. But he has almost 30 more tackles than Caleb Farley. Yeah, he's, he's definitely a physical guy, which um, looking at the stats and your final player – is actually of the three before I looked at the stats who I was most excited to be on here. Mm-hmm, yeah, 
And and who Nate's talking about is Patrick Certain the second from University of Alabama, who you know Alabama DBs usually fare pretty well in the NFL, even though John Elway refuses to draft people from Alabama except for Jerry Judy. Well, you think about Alabama. Who are these corners practicing against? Jerry the Judy. Best wa- the best wide receivers in the country. If you play in the SEC and you can guard, they had to go against you know Justin Jefferson, who's going off in Minnesota all the time. Terrence Marshall, who's down there right now. Jamar Chase, who's down there. Uh, you know, go against Florida with Kyle Pitts, the you know yeah. best tight end in the nation right now. And Patrick Certain in his time at Alabama has four interceptions, twenty-two pass deflections, and a hundred and six tackles. Yeah, he he lays those shoulder pads into people. I definitely of those three, I think he is the one that I would want the most. Oh uh, yeah, I said it right from the start. Of the four, I think Certain would be the biggest win. Mm-hmm. The Peterson would definitely bring in a good veteran presence since we have a younger secondary minus Kareem Jackson. Yeah, Peterson would be an immediate impact guy. Mm-hmm. But then again, you got to think how much will that money limit us to bring in other players? And one one big thing that Peterson could help us on is the return game. He's a great kick returner. He's been that That's true. his whole career. Right. That could yeah, give us but some... he's, he's kind of strayed away from returning lately because when you pay a corner that much money, they don't want to let you get injured. Yeah, I remember when Patrick Peterson was drafted and all the kick returns he had against yeah. Carolina's rookie year. So that's going to conclude my uh, weekly segment. Now we're going to jump into Nate's really cool segment. Uh, what do you got for us this week, Nate? Yeah, so Wayback Bronco this week is going to be a player that any NFL fan of any team should know who he is, and it is our current general manager, John Elway. The great number seven. Um, yeah, the number, the great number seven. So he played from 1983 to 1998. He had a 16-year NFL career, all with the Broncos. He didn't play with anybody else. Um, he was elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 2004. So a little background about Johnny Boy is that he was born June 28, 1960 in Port Angeles, Washington. And as a NFL player, he was his playing metrics were six foot three, two hundred and fifteen pounds. And fun fact that I learned in this research is that John Elway's middle name is Albert. Did I you did, know that? I did not know that. Kind of kind of funny that it's a not silly name, but like an unheard of kind of name. Mm-hmm. So he played college at Stanford. Um, he was the first overall pick by the. Colts in 1983, and do you know what Colts team that team originated out of? Like what city? Good old Baltimore, Maryland, just yeah, right down the street from Nate and I. Yeah, right down the street. The Baltimore Colts drafted him. Um, do you want to talk about the, the that whole issue, or you want me to get yeah, into? Yeah, I'll, I'll go into that. But I also had another fun fact I wanted to say about the draft. Did you know that coming out of college, NFL scouts thought that John Elway threw the ball too hard. But yeah, it's, they say the, they said the same thing about Baker Mayfield, but I don't mm-hmm. think that's an issue. <laughs> no, so you know John Elway um, was traded from the Colts. He going into the draft, he said, "I don't want to play for the Colts. I refuse to play for the Colts." And what did the Colts do? They draft him anyway. John yeah, Elway. Do you know? Do you know why he didn't want to play for the Colts? They were super bad, and because John Elway was an amazing baseball player, and he and, said. And because the culture, um, they had some very rude interaction with John's dad. Yeah. And so 
John's dad was like, they disrespected me, don't go play for them. And he was like, but got you, dad. Yeah. And, you know, John Elway was literally like, I'm going to go play baseball if the Colts draft me. So the Colts stupidly draft him. They ended up trading him to our beloved Broncos. And they ended up, I don't think the guy, the draft picks and the player that they traded for yeah, really so they got, amounted they got to anything. A backup quarterback, uh, another backup player, and then they drafted a defensive lineman that didn't really amount to much. So, But the thing is, it worked out for both teams because I don't believe that if John Elway played for the Colts, I mean, I do. I believe that if John Elway played for the Colts, they would not have been in position to draft Peyton Manning, who helped that team tremendously yeah. and then came to us and ended up helping us tremendously. Yeah, very true. Okay, so um, Elway, as Mark said, he did get he got drafted by the Royals. Ended up playing some minor league ball with the Yankees. So that's kind of a fun fact about him. Uh, on to some of his accomplishments. He led Denver to a record 47 fourth-quarter comebacks. They called him the comeback king. He was undeniably, I think, the best at coming back in the fourth quarter. And nowadays, I feel like is often forgotten in the debate when people are bringing up, like, Manning and Brady. You can't leave out how good Elway was in the fourth quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, he also is the NFL MVP in 1987. He was named All-Pro that year. He was named second-team um, All-NFL a handful of times. Um, he was named All-AFC four times, um, AFC Offensive Player of the Year in 93. He was named to the 1990s All-Decade team, elected to nine Pro Bowls, started five, started in five Super Bowls and won his last two of them, and he was Super Bowl MVP in Super Bowl 33. Whew. What Don't a worry, career. this would be a lot of stats. What? I said, what a career. Yeah, I know. And that's, I'm telling you right now, that's just the accomplishments. I'm not getting to the stats or the records or anything yet. This will be a long segment because we know how much of a goat John Elway was. Mr. Brown. So, so with stats, he played 16 NFL seasons. He had 51,475 pass yards. Um, at the time of retirement, that was second all time. He was also second all-time with pass attempts, 7,250. He was also second all-time with completions, 4,123. So he was very good at moving the ball around. Um, He also had 300 passing touchdowns. He was one of the first couple quarterbacks to pass that um, landmark. And I know nowadays with like Drew Brees and Tom Brady having their battle, 300 doesn't seem like a lot. It was a completely different NFL back there where every single offense was run heavy. Like, mm-hmm. the quarterbacks just, they weren't known. Like, Elway was one of the first quarterbacks to really be, like, slinging the ball that around. That 83 draft class really changed the landscape of the NFL with him and Marino. Yeah, and so with all those stats, I also want to point out that at the time of his retirement, he was the most sacked quarterback in NFL history. Poor, you know, that's crazy to think that, you know, the Denver's usually had pretty good O-lines. And, I mean, John Elway played with Mark Schlereth and all them. But, I mean, yeah. er- early on in his career, he was getting chased around a lot. So Yeah, I think that's the main thing was those early career um, years with not much surrounding him. Mm-hmm. Um, he also had 3,407 rushing yards and 33 rushing touchdowns. Um, and then this might be a fun fact for you. He had three receptions for 61 yards and a receiving touchdown. Attaboy. So that was I, good old yeah, triple threat. Attaboy. And he had seven punts for 253 yards, and he averaged 36 point yards per punt. So 
our go John Elway, amazing passer, pretty good rusher. Um, I saw a stat about him, which I didn't add in here, but I think it's worth bringing up. He was the first quarterback to have over 3,000 passing yards and I think it was like 300 rushing yards in a season ever or something like that. See, I'm like, nowadays, like, every quarterback's rushing over 300 yards a year. See, see, Baltimore fans, this is the difference between having an actual quarterback a cor- playing quarterback and a running back playing quarterback. <laughs> hey, that's your comment, not mine. <laughs> okay, so now we'll get into some of his records. I've kind of broken it up into different things. We went, kind of went over his, like, regular season career records already with some of his stats. Next up will be his Super Bowl records. Um he was first with most passes attempted in his in career of Super Bowls with 152. He was second with most passing yards in his career, tied for second for most Super Bowl games played, tied for second for longest pass completion. Do you know which one that one was, Mark? That was um, the big one against the Falcons, right? Yeah, it was to an undrafted receiver who I love. Good old Rod Smith. Rod Smith in Super Bowl 33, 80 yards. Which is kind of funny because Rod Smith's number was 80. Um, he was also third for most passes completed in the Super Bowl, most passing yards per game, or most passing yards in a game, which he threw for 336 against the Falcons. And then he had he's tied for third for most points in the Super so Bowl. So were those, t- like, first, second, tied for second, were those at the time he retired, or is that still yeah, current so, today? Yeah, so... For the Hall of Fame, they always put the stats for the players' like um, records. They always put it at time of retirement. Okay. Um, just so that like you can kind of get a better grasp of how they performed in their era. Makes sense. Um, yeah. So obviously now there's going to be some people who have crazier stats than this with the how the NFL is built nowadays. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the next segment segment I'll do is his postseason records. Um, he was second at time of retirement. All these are time of retirement for most passes attempt in the postseason, most passing yards, which he had 5,000 passing yards in the postseason, uh, most passes completed, um, third for most games, uh, 300 or more yards passing, um, third for most touchdown passes, third for most consecutive games with touchdown passes, which he had nine games in a row with a touchdown pass in the postseason. And there was just so, so many more records he has in the postseason that I didn't want to be here for an hour, so I kind of limited it to just a couple. Um, next up, I went through the team records just to see, like, on the Broncos' history what records he holds. And I got to say, it's literally every single record is like his besides the ones broken by Peyton Manning in that record-breaking passing season he had. But, like, all the like career most passes, most this, most that. John Elway has, has them all. Has them all. Mr. Bronco, once again. Mr. Bronco. Um, so I want to kind of do a little talk with me and you. I know me and you both have watched um, Broncos games and historic Broncos games our whole childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, so I picked out what I think are the three greatest memories of John Elway because I mean, he is Mr. Bronco. He is the most impactful Bronco player in the Broncos history, I think. So I think the most known memory of John Elway is the drive. A little bit about the drive. Um, It happened in 1986 in an AFC title game. So a real big game against the Browns. 
we actually faced the Browns in the title game. I think it was like three years in a row around then. So very good Browns team. Um, we got the ball back. They muffed a punt, and we got the ball at the two-yard line. John Elway um, constructed a 98-yard touchdown drive to tie the game. We ended up winning the game in overtime, and that drive finished with a touchdown to Mark Jackson. Um, now, my little input about it is I remember in interviews him talking about um, that touchdown pass to Mark Jackson and him saying that he saw Mark was kind of open coming across the field, and he said that he had time to plant his foot, and he said he thought in his head, I'm going to throw this ball as hard as I possibly can because there's no way a defensive back will be able to catch the ball. Mm -hmm. I'm going to throw this ball so hard that I don't even think Mark Jackson can catch it. And he was like, but I know if I throw it this hard, it will not get picked and we'll live another down. And he rocketed this ball. And Mark Jackson ended up catching it. And after the game, they had asked Mark Jackson about it. And he said that it hurt his hands more than any other pass he's ever caught. Right. Yeah, there's actually a really good uh, interview that Peyton Manning just did on his season two of Peyton's Place where him and John Elway break down the drive if you guys want to check that out on ESPN+. Plus. Yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah, that's, I mean, that I think is one of the most historic. If, if you have something happen in your career that gets limited down to a two-word name, the something, mm-hmm. you know it's historic. The drive. And then the next year we beat the Browns with the fumble. Like, it's just some historic plays like that. Um, my next memory, which I'll let you kind of talk about since I've talked about that one, was um, something humongous impacted in the Super Bowl 32 um, game, which was the helicopter dive. I'll let you kind of talk about the impact of that or that memory so super bowl 32 was the um broncos super bowl against the green bay packers brett Favre, hardy won a first super bowl john elway playing in i think his what third super bowl i believe his fourth fourth super bowl i believe denver just switched over to their current uniforms they were wearing the blue jerseys with the white pants i don't know why i'm telling you all this and that that's not important but, but later later on in the game, John Elway uh, ran. He didn't score on the play, but he has one of the most iconic plays of an NFL history. He does yeah, a, boot- it was a Yeah, it was a crucial third down conversion that he needed to keep the drive going to end up scoring and yeah. win the game. He did a little bootleg to the right, uh, saw some open space. He dove for the first down, got hit um, around the shoulders by one Packers defense defender and around the legs and another defender by another player and spun in the air like a helicopter and that is the helicopter play that's why yeah that's land, the name. landed for the first down and um i think what what was really big about that was it showed how committed he was and when you see your very old quarterback in his 15th year in the nfl laying his old body down on the line and getting just demolished and killed by two people to win a game i think What's better motivation to, to win that game for him? Yeah, that was um, one of the most important plays of my life because if it wasn't for that Super Bowl, I would not have been born. So thank you for doing the helicopter play, John Elway. And then that was Super Bowl thirty two, which finished with um, Pat Bowling having the famous words of this one's for John because John had worked so hard, done so much, it was so important, and they were just the organization was so happy to get a Super Bowl for the team, the organization and for John Elway more specifically. Um, So then my third memory is Super Bowl 50, which me and Mark are finally alive for one of these memories. 
Um, and it's when we won that Super Bowl and John Elway held up the trophy and said this one's for Pat. And I don't know about you, but like, like I wasn't bawling my eyes out or anything, but like it hit me like hard. Cause like Pat yeah. Bolin has done so much stuff for us. And that was one year mm-hmm. after he stepped down because of Alzheimer's, which was still very fresh. Yeah. Um, that was just a big win for the whole organization. You know, yeah. Peyton Manning's final game of his career. We didn't know how much longer Pat Bolin had left. That was just a big win for everybody. That yeah, day. that's just like a like a movie moment. Like mm-hmm. it's just everything climaxed in the perfect moment. And then the final thing about this way back Bronco is going to be that he currently is the Broncos general manager who constructed that Super Bowl 50 roster. Um, I'm not going to say he's the best GM, but he is very good at his job. When he first took the job, he was amazing at getting talented free agents. That's what he lived on, but he wasn't very good at drafting. And in his GM career, he, I feel like he has shifted, and now his struggle is more with free agency, which obviously still brings in great talent. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's drafting so much better nowadays. Yeah, what a lot of people don't realize, if it wasn't for John Elway, we never would have gotten Peyton Manning. He, yeah, yeah, he never would have even considered playing for us. Um, so that kind of closed my way back when, uh, way back Bronco took up quite a bit of time. So I'll kind of let you run through rookie spotlight and we'll get to our next week's preview. Yeah. So rookie spotlight this week, we're just going to keep it short and sweet since the really, you know, got guys didn't really do much. So Jerry Judy, um, he had five yards in the last game. He, what really got him in the spotlight this week is he deleted a tweet that said, at least I got my conditioning in, which I think he is getting really fed up with his lack of targets. You know, being he's used to being Alabama's unstoppable number one option, and he's barely getting any looks anymore. And yeah. I saw I saw an interview with Pat Shermer this week where he goes, uh, Judy's playing well this year. We're going to continue getting him the ball. And then everybody was saying, how can you continue to do something you're not doing? Yeah, like, yeah, it's a fact. Like, that makes yeah. no sense. Like, what do you mean you're going to continue getting him the ball when the dude has, like, one catch a week? I think he's had, like, maybe five catches over the last three games. Granted, one of those was the Kendall Hinton game, but... Yeah, I think um, I think what Jerry Judy's got to realize is that, like, Locke passes to Tim Patrick a lot because they have multiple years and a connection. He mm-hmm. passes to Hamler because just about all the routes that Hamler runs are short crossing routes or screens and stuff like that. Uh, I feel like Locke just doesn't have the connection with Judy yet without uh, the offseason and everything and COVID practices missing and all that stuff. So I, I think it's something that will build, and Jerry Judy will become that number two option behind Sutton. Yeah, it'll, it'll take a while, and Judy's got to realize that. Um, speaking of KJ Hamler, he had two catches for 16 yards. On one of them, he had a crazy, you know, juke. He juked like four people out. Yeah. But on he a, was very shifty. But on a solemn note, he had that one costly drop. Yeah, I think if he caught that ball, we would have won that game. So exactly. I don't want to put the blame on one player, but it was crucial. Yeah. Uh, East, on the defensive side, Isang Bassi tore his ACL. Huge loss for us. We already touched on that. And then Michael Ojemudia had a... End of the game with a 54.9 coverage grade. He allowed five catches for 73 yards and a touchdown. Yeah, and that coverage grade is against Tyreek Hill. Yeah, like, so, I'll you know, it's, a, it's hard to ask anybody, let alone a rookie, to guard Tyreek Hill. So, yeah. so that's going to end our brief little rookie spotlight this week. Uh, Nate, what do you? let's get you to uh, preview the Panthers game for us. 
Yeah, so um, we'll start with the Panthers Panthers stats so far. So they're four and eight this year, one and four in division, kind of like us. Um, overall, twenty six. Um, their offense is ranked nineteenth. Their defense is twenty seventh, and their special teams is sixteenth. Um, now, offensively, they are averaging twenty three point three points per game. Good for us. Um, 248.4 passes per game, pass yards per game, and then 106 rush yards per game, which that rush yard number, like our rush defense will cancel that out. 250 pass yards. So I'm not too much worried about their offense. Um, then defense, they allow 25 points per game, 250 pass yards per game, and 115 rush yards per game. Um, so... My main thing about this game is it's kind of tough to judge the Panthers. So um, I'll get into this next segment. Um, I think it might be a scheduled win, kind of like the Saints had against the Broncos, because I'll kind of name out some of these players for you, Mark, that the Panthers are going to be missing. Um, They're going to be missing Christian McCaffrey, who is literally their whole offense. Literally one of the best players in the league. Yeah, they're going to be missing their number one and two receivers, DJ Moore and Curtis Samuel. They're going to be missing their best linebacker, Shaq Thompson. Their two of their three best defensive linemen, Derek Brown and Zach Kerr, and a defensive and a defensive end, um, Gross Matos. Um, yeah, do you think this is kind of like a, the the football gods giving us a makeup for the Saints game? Yeah, definitely. Especially the one, the one you know loss right here I really feel bad about is Christian McCaffrey getting to play against his hometown team a team that you know should have done everything they can to have drafted him especially after he told John Lee I want to play here yeah we the tough thing about that is he just wasn't available yeah but we got Garrett Bowles out of it so yeah I mean it turned out pretty well for us now so down the road yeah Yeah, down the road not immediately it wasn't an immediate payoff like McCaffrey but yeah yeah so what do you think we should watch for in this game Mark so, like I made the comment when we were writing this outline, um, it's like we're going to be watching like a JV game this week, basically. We're going to be seeing a lot of backup wide receivers versus backup DBs, so we got to see who's better. Uh, if, if their yeah. backup wide receivers are better than our backup DBs or vice versa. Um, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be exciting because I think it'll be a great game for, Mo, for OJ Moody. Again, thrown into the fire like he did last week and now this week. He'll be, instead of guarding a Tyreek Hill, he'll be guarding somebody a little bit closer to his experience. Exactly. And then another big one that we have here is the uh, defensive pressure versus Bridgewater. Uh, you know, Shelby Harris back that's going to, you know, create that push up the middle. We got Malik Reed and Bradley Chubb who are playing really well this year. So hopefully we can get some pressure there and force Bridgewater to make some errant throws and maybe boost our turnover differential a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and then the final thing I have to watch out for is. O-line versus a beat-up D-line. I think this will be a good week for our O-line to, you know, really boost their morale. They'll be able to play yeah, against I, a beat-up D-line. What I, do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think um, this has the opportunity to be a confidence game. And it obviously, I'm not going to say we're a guaranteed win here because the Broncos this season are never a guaranteed win. But it shows a lot of opportunities for a lot of our players to earn that confidence that they haven't really been able to get yet. Yep. Um, Who worries you on the Panthers, Nate? Yeah, so it's tough because just about everybody that normally would worry me is not playing. So I have Robbie Anderson, who we know from the Jets and all this time in the NFL, is extremely fast. Mm -hmm. Um, 
which I feel like the Panthers might get into a situation where they need to pass the ball more, and there might be a lot of deep threats down the sideline to Robbie Anderson. Um, so hopefully our young DBs can kind of cover them well enough to allow our safeties to shut them out. And then the second person is Teddy Bridgewater. Um, he's not going to have all the weapons that he normally has, but he is a smart veteran, a lot of time learning under some great quarterbacks. He has a lot of NFL playing experience, and he's very athletic. He's, like, sneaky athletic. Yeah. Um, so at any time that he's out of the pocket, I won't be surprised if he's running for first downs and things like that and really creating, like, those second-chance plays. So definitely need to watch out for those two players. For sure. Um, what keys do you think um, we need to perform to win this game? Uh, definitely got to stop the run and force the pass. That's first and foremost. Bridgewater doesn't doesn't have the connection with his starting receivers, so they can't really, you know, carry them in a pass-heavy offense. When, you know, our defense have, knows they're going to throw the ball every play, they're going to be able to key in more on Bridgewater watches yeah. always get picks. Yeah, with the better blitz, and then we have Justin Simmons, who is a ball hawk. Um, any errant throw is eventually going to lead to a pick. Yep, that's what you have here. The heavy blitz, the forced hero-type throws to get turnovers, turnovers, turnovers. On the offensive side of the ball, we definitely need to run more play action. Drew Locke seems to do pretty decent in play action. Uh, it'll help reduce turnovers, allow L- Drew Locke to go into more of like an Alex Smith-type role and increase his confidence because that's first and foremost. We can't crush this poor kid's confidence. Yeah, I think we saw last week with him... With, like, Melvin Gordon basically running the offense, um, how much better Drew Locke is when he's that, like, second-hand guy or that facilitator. Exactly. Yeah, and it's going off of that, uh, get a heavy dose of the run game, continue Gordon's momentum, and hopefully we can figure out what is going on with Philip Lindsay and get their two-headed monster at running back back. Yeah. Um, so that'll close up our prediction for the Panthers. Just kind of know... Panthers are very injured. We are very injured as well, so it's going to be an interesting game there. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll get to our score predictions. Um, I am going to pick the Broncos to win 20-13. to 13. I think um, Panthers will get a touchdown and two field goals. Broncos will get two touchdowns and two field goals. So it'll be a close game. What do you think, Mark? Yeah, I think this is the first time all season I predicted the Broncos to win, actually. I have them winning 24 to 17. I believe that um, the Broncos are going to jump out to an early, you know, 24 to 3, 24 to 7 lead. And I believe the rest of the Panthers' points are going to be scored in garbage time. Okay. I like that. I would would definitely enjoy to watch that game. Mm -hmm. Because I'm not really worried about garbage time points. You know, it happens all the time. So, yeah. Our next predictions are Hail Mary predictions, who Nate has now tied me. We are both 1 and 2 in the Hail Mary predictions. Yeah, I'll go first. I know Nate had a little, uh, was a little said mine was a little questionable. I think the Broncos are going to have over four hundred yards of offense this game. Yeah, that'll be that'll be um some miraculous there. That means Drew Locke is going to be spreading the ball around to everybody, and our running backs are running all over the place. I mean, gotta take advantage of the injuries while you can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is the first time we'll be able to be taking advantage of another team's injuries. Exactly. Um. My Hail Mary prediction is going to be that the Broncos win the turnover battle. And not just that they win the turnover battle, but they win the turnover battle by plus two, which means we get two more turnovers than the Panthers. Drew Locke, you hear us? Hold on to that ball, my guy. Yeah, yeah Drew Locke, please help me out. And you too, Melvin. <laughs> yeah, so 
This will conclude our episode this week. As always, we greatly appreciate all the support we have gotten through listens, downloads, and people who spread our name to their friends and family and everybody else. Um, tune in next next week for yet another episode. Once again, I'm Nate. I'm Mark, and we're the Appalachian Broncos.